Good morning, church. It's good to be with you today. Welcome, whether you're here in person or online. We are in the midst of Galatians. We've been there a while, and we're still going to be there a while. And um, it's not a huge book, but there's so much packed in here. So it's going to actually take us through August, so two more months. I hope you're enjoying Galatians. Maybe by the end you'll be ready to be done with Galatians. But it is a rich book. And Paul here is writing to the church in Galatia because they're having a problem. They're having conflict. They're having disunity. There have been people that have been labeled as agitators that are telling the Jewish and Gentile believers that that the Gentile believers have to follow Jewish customs, that they have to follow the Mosaic law. And so there's this tension that is within the church. And Paul is writing them to say that that is not the case, that that is a false gospel, that the gospel is actually Jesus Christ and what he does for you, not what we do for him. The Jewish law does not make them fully accepted by God. It's Jesus that makes them both fully accepted by God. So it's a book of freedom because freedom is hard to live into. No matter what the context, home, work, politics, economic, or church life. And that's why Paul is writing here because freedom was not easy for them to walk into. They wanted to pull back. The temptation was to pull back from the freedom they knew in Christ. So let's pray. God, I thank you for your word God, may your Holy Spirit help us to understand it and to live it. God, may your Spirit do what we cannot do, and that is change ourselves, God. May your Spirit be at work. Amen. All right, so we start with Genesis 3.28, and this is probably one of the most famous verses in Galatians itself, and we'll go through verse 4.11. There is no longer Jew or Greek, There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. My point is this. Heirs, as long as they are minors, are no better than those who are enslaved, though they are the owners of all the property but they remain under guardians and trustees until the date set by the father. So with us, while we were minors, we were enslaved to the elemental principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children." And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. Verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to beings that by nature are not gods. Now, however, that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, How can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly elemental principles? How can you want to be enslaved to them again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that my work for you may have been wasted. Paul is pretty strong in Galatians. Again and again and again, he is strongly talking to them, encouraging them, exhorting them. Verse 28. 
He goes through this famous list of you're not this and you're not that. Our status in the kingdom is determined not by these things, but by Jesus Christ. These social locations, these ethnic locations, are not what determine our placement to God. Rather, Jesus levels the field. Here's the thing. The church was one of the few places that these groups actually came together. The church was a bridge between Jews and Greeks, slave and free, a place of equality for men and women, and it was at risk of being torn apart. Those, ex- those differences existed in society, but in the church, they melted away because of, not that those things didn't still exist, but because of Jesus Christ. Our one standing in the body isn't determined by those things, but by Jesus Now, what Paul is saying is pretty radical for the time. Outside of the church, these distinctions still matter if you were a slave or a free person or a man or a woman or a Jew or a Greek. There were certain things that society forced upon you, but it's not to be that way in the church. We center ourselves on Jesus. And this was a huge issue in the church. And it's not an issue that we are unaccustomed to today. What are issues that divide our city? What are issues that divide our church? How can we help to break down barriers? See, Paul isn't saying that these differences don't matter. Each of those positions brings a perspective, but he's saying what we have in common being made in the image of God, being redeemed by Jesus Christ, what we have in common is greater than what separates us. See, it would have been easier to plant a Jewish Christian church. It would have been easier to plant a Gentile Christian church. It would have been easier to plant a church for free people and a church for slaves a church that elevated women and a church that did not. That's not Paul's encouragement here. His encouragement is to be the church, and to be the church is to be centered around Jesus Christ and not the things that are different. It's hard to do this. You can go through a list of churches today in Hong Kong and see all of the distinctions. I'm not saying that those are always a bad thing. It's hard to do church when we have differences. It is. And yet, it is how God grows us. Because it stirs up these differences. It stirs up the fact that we have to have conversations, that we have to work through things. God doesn't call us into the body of Christ to be exactly the same as everybody else then it's easy to love, but we're not really stretched in our love. God calls us to be community together and to work on it because he is unified, and that's what he desires for us. He says in verse 29 that we are fully accepted, fully heirs of Abraham because of who Jesus is. The passage continues in chapter 4. See, Paul is saying that Jewish believers and Gentile believers had a very different starting point in their relationship with God. That Israel came first, and then 
the Gentiles came second. But it doesn't matter where they started. Jesus has erased those differences as they've become believers. Paul gives them another image to help understand the role of the law. We talked about a different image last week that the law was likened to a guardian, right, to a babysitter. Here he talks about it as a trustee, as a father versus a minor child, as an heir versus a slave. Now, Paul has this very difficult word in in verse 3, this phrase, elemental principles, and he also comes back to it in verse 9. The elemental forces or principles were things like earth, you know, water, fire, wind. So there's a broad range of meanings here. But we know, one, that there are spiritual forces, right, that are opposed to God, spiritual beings opposed to God. Paul talks about this in um, Ephesians as well as in this chapter here, that have authority, these powers and these principalities um, are some of these elemental principles, but he's also talking about moral principles here. He references this in Hebrews 5 and then later in verse 9, these elemental building blocks of society, sort of the common good or natural law and even the law itself, he says in verse 9. So these are elemental forces and they're working against the believers in Galatia. He goes on to verse 4 and 5, and he said, God sent his son, right, to redeem those who were under the law, to redeem, to draw back, to win back, to pay back, to redeem those who were following the law. Tim Gombis, in his book, Power and Weakness, says it this way, Paul came to see that the enslaving grip of the present evil age would not be broken by any human effort not even by passionately faithful Pharisees producing a nation of fellow Jews who diligently observed the Torah. That was not enough to break the grip of these elemental forces. In fact, it had to be Jesus Christ. That image is reflected here in this image that we come back to again and again and again. With the fall, we see these elemental forces at work, those things opposed to God, pulling heaven and earth apart. But God came in Christ to deal a fatal blow to those powers, not completely eliminated yet until the time of judgment when all of those elemental forces opposed to God will cease to exist. In the meantime, we're in this overlap as believers bringing the kingdom of God, bearing witness to the kingdom of God through the power of Jesus Christ. The reign of these elemental principles is short-lived and will ultimately come to a final end on the day of judgment. Now, Paul suggests that God does not wait for his children to grow up. What does he do? He adopts them. He adopts them. He changes their status from slave to heir. And he goes on to say that Pentecost, that God gave what? Not the law, but God gave the spirit, his own spirit. Because of this adoption, because of this spirit, we can call God what? Abba, Father, this Aramaic word of intimacy. Because we have and want relationship with God, and he wants relationship with us. 
When Maya was 18 months old, our daughter, we adopted her into our home. Her status changed from orphan to our child, to our heir. And I can remember when she began to identify us, not just as these people in her life, but as parents, as daddy, as mommy. We'll return to this later. Verse 8, he says, Jewish believers and Gentile believers are both adopted. Both sides are adopted in. They both had a journey to take. They were both impacted by elemental forces. See, the Gentile Christians then are told that they have to adopt the Jewish law, but Paul says it would enslave them. Paul is a pastor, and he longs for the flourishing of the church in Galatia, and he doesn't mince his words about this. So verse 9 sort of brings up another element of what these elemental forces could be. Also idols, good things that have turned into ultimate things. They can be actual gods, kind of those spiritual forces, but they can be good things that have become ultimate things, which is kind of how Tim Keller defines an idol. And we see idolatry being really the number one thing in the Bible that it's speaking against in terms of our relationship with God. See, the Jewish Christians in Galatia their journey was coming out of Egypt, coming out of slavery, coming out of this place where they worshiped other gods. But here was the problem when they were freed from slavery, when they had left, when danger was pursuing them, when things were hard, what did these free slaves want to do? They wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted the predictability of slavery they wanted to know their routine where things were black and white, where things were easy, where they didn't have so much choice because freedom can be scary. But Paul says, Christ has set you free. How can you go back to depending on the law? N.T. Wright says it this way. They are determined, the Jewish Christians, to return once more to the world where life seems safer, more regulated, where you know where you are, in other words, to the life of slavery. See, on the face of it, Paul is making a bold claim here. The Galatian Christians are not saying that they want to go back and worship other deities. They're not saying they want to go back and worship other gods as their people did in Egypt. They're wanting to follow the Mosaic law. They're wanting to see the law as what makes them rightful heirs. But Paul says... Jesus was the Messiah, and with him, a new world of grace has landed, and that God, through the Messiah, makes one family. The Gentile Christians don't have to follow the things that they were following. The Jewish law was given by God with a purpose, with a plan, but now that plan has been fulfilled to go back to it, in other words, is to treat it as a God. So what does this mean for us? How do we freely receive God's freedom? How do we receive his grace? I think Paul has lifted up several things in this passage. One, we're free to receive, to live as an heir and known by God. I think one of the most powerful verses in there 
was not that we know God, but that God knows us. God knows us. See, when we adopted Maya, it was important for her to identify us as parents, as mom, as dad. But even before she knew us as parents, her status had been changed to heir. To heir, because we knew Maya. We knew her. We adopted her. She was our child, even when she was not aware of the fact that she was our child. Paul is saying what is most important Yes, it's important for us to know God. But what is more important than that is that God knows us. And that's the call to find true freedom in knowing God, but being known by him. It can be easier to live life in a very clear-cut system, very black and white, these identities that Paul addresses. Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. By systems in this world, political, are you blue, are you yellow, as a consumer, as a capitalist, as a communist. To be ruled by the elemental forces, desire for money, for fame, for reputation, for sex, for power. It's much harder to follow God with the power of the Holy Spirit to learn true freedom, true humanness, and community with other believers. Paul says there's really no alternative. God has moved towards us through Jesus. And as believers, we have tasted the impact of that freedom. If we go back from that experience, we're actually denying the effect that God has had on us and denying God. So the second way to to receive is to guard against enslavement, whether it be idols, the law, or forces. See, we receive from God. God is free. And he wills us to be free. Culture says to take your freedom, to grab it. Paul is saying freedom is right here. Freedom is here to receive from Jesus. We don't have to take. We can receive because he's generous in his giving. Paul uses the metaphor of father and child. The father has adopted the child in as an heir. We are heirs, church, not slaves. A slave has to grab hold of freedom. They have little power, little opportunity. It's outside of their status. Minor children, right, do not yet have their freedom. They have parents. They have rules. They have restrictions upon them. They don't have complete freedom. Last year, um, Kim Ho led a course on parenting your adult children, right? Because the status changes, how we walk with adult children changes from how you walk with them when they are small. When our kids were little in Hong Kong, they enjoyed a lot of freedom, right? Not complete freedom, 
but more freedom here because it was such a safe place. And when we would travel back to the U.S., when they were especially small, we had to let them know it's not as safe here. <laughs> you need to stay closer to us. You can't just wander off when we're you know, going through the airport. They needed those restrictions upon them because they were still our children. Now we know as children grow into adolescence, they push against those restrictions. They want their freedom. And into adulthood, they go. And Paul says, you are adults. Don't go back to being children. You can't go back to living as children with the scaffolding that the law provided for you. Guard against enslavement, these idols, these things that grab our hearts. Tim Keller says it this way, whatever it is that we worship, we will be enslaved by. If we put our greatest hope in gaining wealth, we'll be controlled and enslaved by it. We will be under its power, the power of money. If we put our ultimate hope in our morality or religion or even serving our family as the place of our security and identity, then it will become an ultimate thing and it will enslave us as an idol. We have to always guard against this. Good things can become ultimate things that take us away from God. So a reflective question, when are you most in danger of living as a slave and not an heir? What are the things that have captured your heart? Where do you find your identity? The believers in Galatia were not wanting to drift from God. They were wanting to be really faithful to God. They didn't disregard God. It's the same with the Pharisees. They loved God. We're trying to follow them the best they knew how. This isn't something that's choosing often between good and bad, but things that pull us away from Christ. What has your identity? What has your heart? And finally, a free to receive, to live into the gospel. The ideal experience of being a child is living in this environment where you are loved and you discover your worth. Sometimes we don't actually experience this in our own families. We might not feel loved. We might feel compared, judged, condemned, never enough. And all families are different. All kids are different. Kids come in different sizes, different temperaments, different personalities, and parent has to deal with each one differently, but with the same love and wisdom. See, we, at our best, and we're not always at our best, if you're a parent, when we're at our best, we don't have favorite children, right? God at his best, and he is always at his best, does not have favorite children. That's what Paul is saying here with the Jews and the Gentiles, one family. If you're a parent and you have multiple kids, um, the first child, it's easy for them to know they are so loved, right? They get so much attention. Um, I, I was a middle child, right, which is like, that's a whole different sermon topic on the challenges of being a middle child. 
But the second child comes along, and the first child says, whoa, my parents are now giving so much love to this other being in the home. Is there enough love to go around? That was a phrase we used a lot in our home. There is enough love to go around. We don't have to compare. We don't have to compete. We don't have to be insecure in our love. God says there is enough. We're not rivals, but we're participants in the common life brothers and sisters in a single family. Every person here can live with that identity as a child of God, a person to be free, to receive love without fear of being diminished or intimidated. Live into the gospel. Tim Keller, in his um, commentary on Galatians, quotes Richard Lovelace um, from his book, Dynamics of Spiritual Life. It's a long um, quote, um, but I think it's worth it. He says this, Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure persons, much less secure than non-Christians because of the constant bulletins they receive from their Christian environment about the holiness of God and righteousness they are supposed to have. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness and defensive criticism of others. They cling desperately to legal, pharisaical righteousness, but envy and jealousy and other sin grow out of their fundamental insecurity. This is something probably the longer we're Christians, the more we wrestle with. I know that I have many times wrestled with doing this very thing. It's a challenge to live into the gospel. Paul reminds us that it is God who makes us worthy, beautiful. We don't do that for ourselves. Yes, it's important for us to know God, but what is more important is God knowing us. Tim Keller emphasizes this point in his thoughts on this passage. What makes a person a Christian is not so much your knowing God, but his knowing you. The worship team is, is going to come up and um, lead us into a song um, before we partake of communion. And this table that we come to, this meal, is one that God invites all of us to. If you want Jesus, we want you to partake of him. If you are headed in the direction of Jesus, head to the table. Come to the table. Remember who you are is one of the lyrics. Remember that you are God's beloved. And Jesus says, remember who I am when you come to the table. Who he is, our redeemer. He has set us free. He knows each one of you. So while they're singing the song, feel free to be reflective. Feel free just to invite the Holy Spirit in to speak to where you're at. And then after a couple of minutes, I'll come up and lead us into communion. God, we thank you that you are present here. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for life. May your Holy Spirit come and minister to each one of us. Amen.